Gary Gygax once said, There is no winning or losing, but rather the value is in the experience of imagining yourself as a character in whatever genre you're involved in. Whether it's a fantasy game, the Wild West, secret agents, or whatever else, you get to sort of vicariously experience those things. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about genres in role-playing games. So, let's kind of define our terms here. What's a genre? Well, like species, there are actually several definitions for genre. But we actually have chosen one that we think expresses exactly what we're trying to say. A paraphrase from Wikipedia says... A genre is any category of art or entertainment based on some set of stylistic criteria with conventions developed over time. Wow, that's a mouthful. So basically, it's a thing that is kind of half standardized just by the nature of how it exists, right? Sounds good to me. Okay, so why talk about this? Well, because we all kind of understand the concept of genre, and it's a very useful shorthand. No one's going to say... I want to run a game set in the American Southwest in the 1880s with emphasis on frontier justice, agrarian living, encroaching civilization and technology, and romanticized violence. Also an emphasis on folk heroes. What would we say instead? I want to play a Western game. See? Summarizes the whole thing very simply. It also does a great job of setting the expectations for what kind of game we're going to play, and it's easy to modify. I can say, I want to run a Western with vampires. Boom. We have a really strong understanding of what that means. A Western with werewolves. A Western with magic. A weird Western. Something steampunky. You know, all of these imply certain things, and there's a big shared cultural knowledge of it that gives us an idea of what we're expecting going into this. Long story short, it's a great way of saying something very simply that tells us what we're going to be doing. So we have a nice long list here of different genres that have been found in role-playing games. And under each of these genres, we have sub-genres. And we're going to talk about all of the different expectations of these genres and try and give a few examples of role-playing games in these genres. Please keep in mind that genres are like colors. You can look at some colors and say, yeah, that's definitely yellow. And another color and say, that's definitely orange. And another color and say, that's definitely blue. But there's a lot of blurred lines between it. You might say, well, I think that's kind of an orangey yellow or a reddish orange. And there are, of course, specific names for those colors, just like there are specific names for subgenres. But it's all a continuum. There's always blurs between these, and it's always a little bit nebulous. But that doesn't mean it's not a useful shorthand. Let's start right off. What is the most common genre in role-playing games, John? Fantasy! Of course, because D&D... The original role-playing game is a fantasy game at its heart. Fantasy games have magic and supernatural phenomenon as their uh, plot elements or theme or as the basic setting. With that in mind, we can really start narrowing our focus on exactly what is fantasy and moreover what isn't fantasy. Also, fantasy is usually a historical type setting, often set in the age of Camelot and the Dark Ages and uh, just before the Age of Enlightenment. 
Yeah, they tend to be medieval to Renaissance, but uh, you can have fantasy in almost any time setting. But that's the most common, is that sort of early medieval to late Renaissance time frame with, uh, again, some nebulousness within it. A lot of times there's major distinctions between the tech levels of different locations within a fantasy setting, and that's kind of almost a hallmark of fantasy to this day. But as a general rule, fantasy comes in high fantasy, which is fantasy that has its own complete setting with magic and typically dragons or monstrous creatures or things like that, and low fantasy, which is fantasy where the fantasy elements are encroaching on a realistic world, uh, typically our world. This would be like if the Merlin in King Arthur's court, or if during the early portions of the Renaissance there were a conflict between the Renaissance masters and their inventions and the old ways of magic. So those would be examples of high and low fantasy. And then finally, urban fantasy, which tends to be sort of a modern setting for the most part. A lot of times with urban fantasy, you get modern settings. You have people with cars driving around, talking on their cell phones, and every now and then pulling out a magic wand and blasting something out their window. So we have great examples of all of these in role-playing. D&D, Pathfinder, obviously very common high fantasy settings. Iron Heroes was a D20 variant that was meant to more emulate sort of a low fantasy setting where uh, your characters are larger-than-life heroes, but they're, they're entrenched in a more realistic world with just a little bit of magic encroaching in on that as not necessarily something the PCs have access to. And urban fantasy is very well represented by D20 Modern. Now, if you play D20 Modern or you're familiar with D20 Modern, you might know that those are optional elements, but come on, who's playing D20 Modern without magic or psionics or anything like that? I really would like to know. Now, I know some people might go, oh, well, an urban setting, that would be the Dresden Files. Hold on, we'll come back to that in a bit uh, toward the end of this. We actually threw the Dresden Files in a, uh, in a whole other genre. But it does fall under that tent as well. And that's what I was saying about these things being blurry. A lot of times you can put things into multiple genres or even define a genre several different ways or possibly even experience a significant overlap between genres. It's all part of recognizing that our terminology is fluid and that we have the ability to recognize elements from one thing and another thing and emphasize what works best for what we're trying to do. It's the next genre. On the opposite side of the same coin as fantasy, we have sci-fi, where fantasy usually takes place in the past or some uh, imagined fa fantastic past. Sci-fi is about the future. Moreover, it's about the future with wonderful science and technology and major social changes. Yeah, typically there's some sort of significant social upheaval or some significant change in technology that exemplifies a given science fiction setting. The most common being space travel, especially faster than light space travel. Again, not necessary but very common. And that's generally the distinction between hard and soft science fiction. In hard science fiction, you're dealing with elements that could exist in the real world. With soft science fiction, you're allowed to imagine technologies that function more or less like magic. I believe it was Robert Heinlein that said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's where there's an interesting overlap with fantasy, too, because you can have that sort of magical science fiction sort of setting. 
A standard science fiction setting game would be something like Traveler. If you want to get a little bit more fantastic, you get Starfinder. Which probably qualifies as space opera, too. Space opera being the kind of science fiction where the science elements exist and are present, but they're not really the focal point. A great example of this is Star Wars, where, yeah, there's there's the Death Star and cruisers and stuff like that, but we never really do an examination of how the technology works so much within the series itself. I know there's a lot of extended universe stuff that discusses that, but within the context of the movies, the story is really about Luke Skywalker and his friend's journey more than anything else. At no point do we really care why there's an exhaust port on the Death Star at a specific point. We just care that this is the hero's moment to shine. So the subgenre of sci-fi that we really want to talk about is kind of this big overarching uh, subgenre, the punk genre, but most specifically cyberpunk. Cyberpunk was more or less created by William Gibson, a writer who wrote such classics as Neuromancer and Johnny Mnemonic. Cyberpunk, for our purposes, are any games that have a very advanced but dystopian style setting where the characters are in what should be a wonderful paradise of a world but are still at odds with their society. Uh, The games we're talking about are Cyberpunk 2020 and the video game based on that that's coming out... uh, uh, don't remember exactly when, but it stars Keanu Reeves. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Shadowrun. Um, have, have I ever given you uh, my definition of Shadowrun? Like, if I were to try to explain Shadowrun to someone, how I would explain it to them? No, go ahead. I would tell them, hey, you, you saw that movie Bright on Netflix, right? Yeah. Imagine if that was good. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's that's about that's about perfect. A big part of the theme of cyberpunk is the sort of anxiety at a world becoming increasingly complex and technological as we start to leave our humanity behind and be engulfed not only in our over-reliance on technology, but also our fear of capitalistic encroachment. That's why there's a massive focus on megacorporations within cyberpunk where these megacorporations become literal empires and start creating their own governments and engaging in full-on wars with each other, almost like back when the East India Trade Company was a major player in world politics. It's the same sort of thing. Um, And a lot of that had to do with 1980s and 1970s anxiety regarding the rise of technological progress in the Far East, especially uh, Japan and China. And that's why in a lot of cyberpunk settings, what you'll see is the yen or new yen becoming a significant economic factor. Uh, (laughs) I know that's, that's a lot of information that doesn't necessarily inform our opinion on cyberpunk in this case. And, uh, a kind of kind of a bit of a digression, but the point is that cyberpunk is a setting where the player characters or the focal points of the story are at odds with this society. They're rebels trying to find a place within a world that would gladly leave them behind. And there's a focus on the struggle between technology and humanity. Uh, specifically, Shadowrun tends to do this a lot because there's a focus on spirit being one of your attributes that gets reduced when you start to add more cybernetic connections. And I think that's 
I, I just a really quick rant. I know. Okay. Um, it's almost a little ableist because we we have cybernetics today of this sort. You know, we we have things like prosthetic legs and arms that have actual ability to articulate and move. And we don't think of that as reducing our humanity. So it's kind of almost weird that we imagine that if our prosthetics become better than us, that they would reduce our humanity. But then again, there's also the idea that if we could create parts that are better than our stock parts as human beings, why wouldn't we replace ourselves with machines and eventually replace all of ourselves with machines, which is a huge existential angsty moment for us all. And anyway... Since you're talking about existential dread, we can move on to our next genre, horror. Horror is often typified by a menacing atmosphere with larger metaphorical, personal, and societal fears coming to the forefront. And, I mean, I can't think of a better series of games than The World of Darkness to exemplify horror. The World of Darkness does a great job of tying it into real-world existential fears as well. Uh, vampires, for many of us, represent the predatory nature of society and how we as humans tend to predate upon one another, be it through uh, the role of the seductive Deva or the authoritarian Ventru or the secretive maquette or the vicious shadow-dwelling Nosferatu, whatever the specific example of it is, it's all about the predations of society. Whereas Werewolf is about the internal struggle with our own inhumanity and our own willingness to commit violence and atrocity. And then you've got Mage about the unknown. You've got Promethean about lack of belonging and alienation. You've got Changeling about loss of identity. Every one of the games plays on some primal, meaningful fear that we experience as an existential dread within ourselves and within society at large. Horror is the genre that I find is most often splashed into the other genres. You can play a fantasy game and then suddenly take a turn into horror. You can play a sci-fi game and come upon a derelict spaceship that came way too close to a black hole and now is infested with demons. It is the genre that is best suited for wearing the skin of other genres. It's also a genre that's good at being splashed into other genres. You can have one session with a substantial horror element to it and then just let it go. Move on with the rest of the game. It's actually very easy in games like Pathfinder, D&D, D20 Modern to have like one haunted house or one necromancer's crypt and then beyond that move on to the regular challenges that's what makes horror such an interesting genre is that it can easily be placed in any other setting and it still works even so there are some quintessential elements to it that make it especially good for certain other kinds of genres it blends especially well for example with mystery mystery suspense and thrillers uh, we've classified as subgenres of horror, at least for role-playing games. It took me a little while to come up with a good example of a mystery role-playing game, of a suspense role-playing game, of a thriller role-playing game. And then John came into the room and went, y you're trying to think about Call of Cthulhu. That's a game that's entirely about finding the clues, sussing out the mystery, and eventually finding out that, oh my goodness, everything is awful. 
the best part is like the characters are even called investigators in the context of it. And also, even though supernatural elements are the norm in it, they're not necessarily going to be the final determination of the investigation. In fact, it could make a very interesting adventure if the investigators discover that, yes, there are a whole bunch of supernatural elements, but the actual cause of this thing is completely mundane. Um, Lovecraft has a story. I can't remember what it was called, but I, I, I vaguely remember the plot. It was something about a wizard who cursed a family so that every one of the members of the family would die before their 30th birthday. And the main character of the story was spending the story finding some way to reverse the spell. But the end twist was it turned out the wizard was just breaking into their houses and murdering them. <laughs> yeah, so so see, that's exactly the kind of thing you can do. It, it's sort of a bait and switch, and it subverts the expectation, which is something that you can do with familiarity with the genre, is without breaking genre, you can subvert expectations and play differently. A big part of what makes uh, thrillers and suspense what they are is that you have one expectation and then that expectation becomes subverted in a suspense film or a suspense game or a suspense anything. What, what is happening is that you have an awareness beyond what, say, your character does of what's going on. And it's them discovering those elements and finding a way to stop them that changes that. Our next genre is romance. Everyone's favorite genre to bash. But in role-playing games, it's actually kind of hard to have a game that is a pure romance story. I mean, romance is all about celebrating the ideas of falling in love and uh, being with someone forever and love conquering all and all sorts of stuff like that. And that's an interesting side plot a lot of the times, but... It's really hard to have that be the central focus of a game. Which is why we are going to once again talk about Monster Hearts, one of the best role-playing games we've ever seen, and possibly one of the most socially significant role-playing games ever made. Yes, I will say that. Monster Hearts is incredible. The great thing about Monster Hearts is that it allows for the playing of these sort of romantic stories as the core of the game, which is what really exemplifies romance is that romance and emotional connection and personal commitment become the core of a romance game. Any game can splash in a romantic relationship, but if it's a romance game in the romance genre, that is the core focus of it. Monster Hearts has mechanics specifically built around players creating connections with each other, understanding each other, hurting each other, loving each other, forming commitments, relationships, and having physical connections to each other. One of the things about Monster Hearts that tugs deeply at my heartstrings is it exemplifies that moment of being a teenager when you're trying to connect with your peers on a level that you've never connected with someone on before. When you're trying to express that you love someone but don't want to end up saying that you love them first. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to do the wrong thing. You don't want to embarrass them in front of their friends. You get these horrible knots in your stomach and you go up to them and go, Hey, I want to go to a movie with you. We've been hanging out a lot. Do you want to do that? And then they say no, and it crushes you. And on top of all of that, you're doing it as vampires, as werewolves, as 
some some being that is othered so deeply that they cannot express themselves in society. It reflects that sort of teenage alienation that we all remember feeling when it was hard to come to terms with our emotions, with our new feelings, with our sexual connections to each other, which reminds me of what is probably the part of Monster Hearts that sold me on the game hardest. There was a section in the original Monster Hearts book, I think that was the section had the header, but I'm not gay. And what it was about is how... When a character rolls hotness to turn another character on, there's no question about sexual orientation or expectations. If they succeed, the character's turned on. Well, what if you're not gay and another character of the same sex as you turns you on? What does that mean? Well, that's a very good question. What does that mean? Because it's what happened. We're not discussing whether or not it happened. Your character is turned on. Does it make them angry? Does it make them frightened? Are they excited by this? Is it confusing? What is the response when we find ourselves having a reaction we don't expect to have? And honestly, I think every single person, uh, every single sexual person, that is, some people are just wired asexual, but people who experience sexual attraction, I think all of us have had the experience of suddenly finding ourselves turned on, excited, or attracted to something we never expected to be excited, turned on, or attracted to. We we might have actually discovered a fetish we didn't know we had. We might have just stumbled upon some aspect of our sexuality we didn't know. Or, on top of that, we might have just had a one-time sudden response to something that we can never repeat, that just never comes up again, you know? All of these are feelings and experiences that we've all kind of had and putting them in a role-playing game is just, it's its very interesting to me and I really love the fact that there's a game that actually tries to tackle this and actually tries to approach this. The subgenre we want to talk about here, and we, we don't really want to touch on this for too much, is the erotic romance. Oh. Let's just be frank. I don't think anyone is really going to be able to convince a large group of their friends to sit around and play an erotic role-playing game for longer than a session. And even then, it's probably going to be a bit uncomfortable for people. I mean, I often find that anytime that people are trying to play a hyper-sexualized character, it's to express that they are vaguely sexually repressed in their own life. I mean, almost everyone who plays the hyper-sexualized bard who goes out and tries to seduce and romance all of the monsters, I I don't know. I, I don't want to say that they have issues, but I think that they are at least a bit closeted in that sense. I feel both seen and attacked. I rolled stealth for a reason, Jeremy. Come on. Uh, an erotic game I can see being an interesting thing to do. I really don't think I even have a circle of friends I could do this with, but it's definitely a topic that people are interested in. It's definitely something that comes up. Uh, it's worth noting that every version of D&D since AD&D 2nd Edition has had some fan base make a book of erotic fantasy of some sort or another. The original AD&D one, I remember, used to circulate Usenet, and that's where I saw it. I remember going through it and thinking, some of this stuff's interesting, but I just, I can't see actually using it in a game. And some of this stuff is absolutely worthless. I mean, I don't want to, 
I don't want to roll for sexual stamina. That's super weird. And there's nothing about that that isn't bizarre. But it's obviously a topic of interest to people. And it's obviously possible to play a game with those undertones. In fact, uh, games like Bliss Stage that specifically explore sexual relationships could easily incorporate some elements of um, eroticism or at least erotic recognition within them. If you do decide to do this under any circumstances, I strongly recommend that you have an X card or some way of halting the gameplay quickly in case things step over a line or move into territory that makes someone genuinely and truly uncomfortable. Having said that, um, it would be an interesting thing to explore and I can totally see why someone would want to try it. The next genre we want to talk about is historical fiction. Now, this is kind of a broad category where we're throwing your westerns, your pirate games, your eastern adventure style games all together. And it, it's because they all really focus on one place in the world at one time and doing a fictionalized version of something there. Probably the biggest one of these is the western. Uh, there are actually a lot of western RPGs out there. From the extremely realistic, like Aces and Eights, all the way to the Weird West game. Deadlands. Yes. All of these run the spectrum of the Western genre. The thing about Westerns is, though, that I've always felt like it's kind of weird that it's treated as a distinct genre, given that it's such a narrow geographic region and such a narrow time frame. The Western... Now, hold, hold on there, John. It was only about 30 years. Okay, well... If, if we're going by the actual Wild West period, that's about 30 years. But the actual period of Western expansion that we think of as the Western time started all the way in 1800 and went all the way to 1895. Along with that, most people only think of the West as the desert area, the, the American Southwest. Right. But the range is everywhere from Montana to the Dakotas. You can have Western stories set in New Orleans, and even the Oregon Trail is a Western-style uh, setting and story. I guess so, but... All of this is the American West. You have such grand times and grand themes all over it that it's really a lot more diverse than you'd get in a standard Louis L'Amour book. Okay, but I mean, g give me an example of Western diversity that I am not thinking of right now, because I, I'm i thinking of the range, I'm thinking of all that, but we've got cow drives, we've got gunslingers, it's still all pretty homogenous. Obviously, the most famous uh, Western actor of all time is John Wayne, but who's the most famous Western character? I would imagine probably uh, Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday would be the correct answer. I'd argue Zorro, and he's a Mexican western hero holy crap you're right i i just i hadn't yeah what <laughs> i yeah no you're right zorro zorro is a western and is probably better known than wyatt earp or doc holiday holy i i was not prepared for that i i concede the point the western is a pretty dynamic genre and actually um Actually, I guess so is the pirate genre, because when we think of the pirate and swashbuckling genre, we tend to think of like high seas adventures in the Caribbean. But that time frame and that feel is not just exemplified by adventures in the Caribbean, but you could also 
consider the Three Musketeers to be a swashbuckling setting in the same sort of sense. And you could even do something over in the Far East uh, or off the coast of Australia. I mean, all of that would also be within that pirate period. I do want to have a quick little warning here. We did mention that a lot of Eastern games fall under the historical fiction genre, uh, specifically Legend of the Five Rings uh, in the Rokugan setting is near and dear to my heart. But I have found that a lot of people who just get into the games can often be culturally insensitive to people from the actual East. There is a tendency to play to stereotypes in this, and we, we all enjoy playing in historical settings and playing in fantasy versions of real-world things, but we, we do need to recognize that a lot of our fantasy versions are informed by what may be very racist stereotypes. And in recognizing that, we can still enjoy these settings and enjoy these worlds, but we need to know the differences between fantasy and the romanticized versions of these that are presented in a lot of historical fiction writing versus the reality of these settings where there's real people with real lives who lived in real ways that we we might be completely overwriting within our imaginations with these ideas. It's important to grasp the difference between history and reality. So we have one last genre here, and this is kind of a catch-all genre, but it's very important that we set this one aside from the other genres, and that is the fandom game. Fandom games are games built around a specific fandom, typically a series or show or movie. A lot of them are just named whatever it is. Doctor Who, the role-playing game. Firefly, the role-playing game. Star Trek, the next generation, the role-playing game. Star Wars, the role-playing game. All of these will fall under other genres. I mean, no one's arguing that Star Trek, Star Wars aren't science fiction. They absolutely are. But having said that, the more important distinction is that they are a fandom game. And when you play a fandom game, the one major expectation of the game is that it's going to be like the series. I feel that probably the game that dropped the ball biggest on this was the Dragon Age RPG. I've kind of given it crap before, and I'm going to do it again, because the big problem with it is it didn't play like Dragon Age. It wasn't recognizable as Dragon Age. The only thing it had in common with Dragon Age is it was using Dragon Age's setting. And frankly, I could do that with D&D. It doesn't matter. I don't need a whole role-playing game to do it. What we wanted to get out of the Dragon Age role-playing game was an experience like playing Dragon Age. We don't get that. That's the problem with it. And when you play a genre game in a fandom setting... What you want is to play that fandom. You might want to subvert that fandom in some meaningful way. You might want to play Firefly, for example, not as the crew of a Firefly, but as members of the governmental organization trying to hunt them down. I mean, that's totally legitimate, but you're still playing within the setting to the expectations of the setting within the setting's shared space. If you're playing a setting game, you expect it to resemble the setting. And that's the important distinction. If you're DMing it, that means that you have to capture that feeling. So that was our episode about genres and role-playing games. 
So why did we have this episode? What, what, what's kind of our highlighted point? Why did we talk about genres for half an hour? Knowing genre helps to guide the story and manage expectations. It's a quick shorthand way of telling your players what kind of game you're playing and what the expectations of that game are. You should be willing to subvert and sometimes change those expectations or modify them by adding the with vampires or with ray guns to it or whatever the specific modifier you want to put on it is. But you need to play within the expectations of that genre, not because we want to constrain ourselves, but because it gives us a shared space to play in. It makes us recognize what we are doing in playing this game and where we're going with it. So what do we have up next? Well, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, it will be the 5th of August. That means I will have just got back from my yearly vacation to Gen Con. And this episode, we'll be discussing what happened at Gen Con, what Jeremy saw, what he thought was interesting, what were the highlights of the experience, and what about the convention stuck out to him. Once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. I try not to discriminate against genres. Ryan Gosling. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.